Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode of Risk, you'll hear Anna Saragina. I don't want to fuck you, but you're wearing a hat. Are you kidding me? I can't fuck you. Wearing a hat. Fuck off. It's a hat. <laughs> that and more. But before that, you know, sometimes feels like there aren't enough hours in the day, motherfuckers, even when you're working past the nine to five. So you're still making time consuming trips to the post office. What the fuck is wrong with you? You need a better way. There is a better way. It's stamps.com with stamps.com you get the postage you need the instant you need it you can buy and print official u.s postage for any letter or package right from your computer and printer it's quick and easy you save money with stamps.com too it's just a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters plus you'll get special postage discounts you can't even find at the post office we use stamps.com at risk and the story studio and we love it. And right now you can sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Get started with stamps.com today. Within minutes, you'll be printing postage right from your own desk. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allis, and this is our dear friend, the time-traveling toaster behind me now, without the the. You didn't do that all the time, like the talking heads. It's just talking heads. And some people say the risk. It's just risk, folks. It's just risk. Now, we are calling this week's episode Heartburn. We have some stories, some fun, some not so fun, around the whole idea of uh, being emotionally spent. Last week was another of those truly just brutal ones here in the States. On Tuesday... Alton Sterling, apparently murdered by the police on Wednesday. Philando Castile, apparently murdered by police. And then on Thursday, this guy, Micah Xavier Johnson, shoots and kills five police officers at a peaceful Black Lives Matters protest in Dallas, which will only play into the hands of those who want to smear Black Lives Matter. It will only make it harder for those of us who stand with Black Lives Matter to get the point across that we need police reform. The struggle is simply between those who are calling for the police to serve and protect all Americans equally, regardless of race, and those who seek to discredit that call. They want to ignore it or smear it or delegitimize it. And, you know, we're not normally overtly political here on Risk, but listen, I highly recommend everyone out there Google A Guide to Taking Action on Police Reform by Nicole Silverberg. And if you're a white person, Google articles like This is What White People Can Do to Support Black Lives Matter by Sally Cohn. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you're a person of color, we want your stories on risk. Now, after live shows, someone will often come up to me. A person of color will come up to me and say, oh my God, thank you so much for what you do. And I'll say, oh my gosh, pitch me a story. That person will say, oh, well, I'm not a storyteller. That doesn't matter. We've had a hundred or so people on here who have never told a story in their life. Or they'll say, well, I don't have a story that's specifically about racism in action or something like that. That doesn't matter either. We feature people sharing stories about all kinds of aspects of their lives. We want people of every economic background, every ethnicity, every culture or religion or sexual identity. We want people of literally every walk of life to share their experience with us here on this show, uncensored, unfiltered. And we can help you with the sharing. We can help you take the raw thoughts and feelings you have and start to go through a process with you where you begin to shape it into a narrative. That's what we teach at our school, the Story Studio, and what we do working here on the podcast week after week. So pitch us yourself and tell your friends to pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. There's tips on how to formulate a successful pitch for us there on that submissions page. 
Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the wonderful writer and comedian Robin Cloud, who is based in New York City. But before that, we're going to hear from the wonderful writer and comedian Anna Saragina, who is based in Los Angeles. Here she is at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles with a story we call The Woman at the Counter. So I was 20 years old and I was working at this coffee shop that's like, not like a, I think a 20 year old working at a coffee shop is a very cool job. This was the opposite of that. This was the inverse coffee shop. This coffee shop was actually a perfect allegory of where I was in my life at that point. It had very tall yellowed walls that kind of looked vomit, tangential, we shall say in color, a very kind of brothy pea, almost yellow, if we're familiar with that color. The bathroom had a night... It smelled like just filthy aquarium water. And then it had a, a perfect low sink that uh, resulted in a lot of people who go to Burning Man coming into our coffee shop to wash their feet on several occasions. And by that, I mean more than three. More than three times I've caught somebody washing their feet in our sink. There was a very tall, loud, super bright refrigerator in the corner that housed and displayed Costco-purchased cakes that were molding. They were definitely molding, and we sold them at like five times the price. And that, so that's the kind of coffee, again, a perfect allegory of where I was in my life emotionally. I'd just gotten out of the kind of relationship that like as a 20-year-old you really want on your resume because it gives you character, you know what I mean? (laughs) Just like just enough angst to be like a person of value (laughs) all of a sudden. You know, where the guy was like, wouldn't let me call him my boyfriend, but like was an artist, you know, so I let it slide. Forced me to drop out of college, you know. But but did improv, so, you know. But had a mom who was dying, so I had to stick around, you know. It's a lovely little situation. So I broke up with him, and it left me in such a lonely place, just profoundly, I mean, horny for sure, but lonely. You know what I mean? Like a lonely horniness that was just permeating every single decision that I ever made at this coffee shop. And I, I was like, both really, I cannot stress how much I wanted to fuck anyone, but how hateful I was at the same time. And so anyone, I'd be like, I don't want to fuck you, but you're wearing a hat. Are you kidding me? I can't fuck you. Wearing a hat. Fuck off, hat. <laughs> and so I, I was at this coffee shop a lot, like daydreaming, and then dreaming about fucking people who were eating the moldy Costco cakes. And then I'd be like, I hate you. Eat the cake. I'm happy. And then uh, one day, just a day like any other, so horny to check back in with me, I'm kind of daydreaming and I catch the eyes of someone sitting just far enough away to where I can't exactly make out his face, but I can see promising features, you know, like a beard. <laughs> I see a beard and I'm like, this is pretty good so far. Uh, all right, I'm listening. Okay. And then a beanie. Oh, I'm in. That's it. Forget about it. A beanie? <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm like inquisitive and somewhat interested and just welcoming to the, to the option. And I, I stare back. And again, I can't really make out the guy's face, but my internal monologue is like, look at me, I am actively flirting. Here I am just letting loose and actively, I like me. Right? This is a good new me. And we make prolonged eye contact for like a while. And then he leaves. 
and I never saw him up close. But then a couple of days later, I'm working again, and again, I see the beard, the beanie, same outfit, so good, good contact clues. And we make eye contact again. And this time, I, I really lock in, and I, I see a little bit more of him. He looks a little older, but handsome. Again, he leaves. I don't approach him. I'm very professional, you know, and, and cunty, so I'm, you know, at a distance. <laughs> and then uh, this happens again and again and again. And then one day, we're, we're staring at each other for quite a long time, and then I, I unfortunately have to go back to my job, so I have to help out a customer, whatever, you know. And then when I look back, he's gone, but there's a note on, on his table. And so I walk over to the table, and I pick up the note, and I, um, well, what could this be? Probably a love note. I'm just guessing, you know. And I unfold it, there's this very beautifully drawn, ornate depiction of a blood moon. Okay. And then some sort of mathematical, like, angles, and then, and then some equations, and then a wonderful depiction of me that's astoundingly beautiful, okay? And then it just says in perfect penmanship, to the woman at the counter. <laughs> and no one has ever called me a woman at the counter. <laughs> so I am in, Okay. Again, he comes in. For some reason, I've just never served him, so I've never really seen him up close, but he keeps coming in. We keep staring at each other. I keep, like, not working, (laughs) and then he keeps leaving notes. And they're all kind of similar, and they're very beautifully drawn, very ornate, great penmanship, but they are getting increasingly a little more creepy. I I will admit (laughs) at this point that they're a little creepy, but mostly I'm interested in the fact that somebody's interested in me, you know, so I, I, I excuse them. Until one day there's a note uh, left in the bathroom, just underneath the sink, next to the toilet on the floor, and it says to the woman at the counter, and then there's a classic little drawing of a, it it just looks like the devil. It just looks like the devil (laughs) with a triangle for a nose, of course, and then it's um, a demon is just right behind, etching up above, okay, and then it says, um, find me, Okay. I see that there's a note left also on the table where he usually sits. Uh, There's another note. Okay, this is a a two-part companion piece, project piece. And this one says, hopefully you saw the first note. Then there's also a photocopied page of a book that I see is by the author George Gurdjieff, who I later find out is a, not satanic, but cult leader, (laughs) tangential author uh, from Russia, definitely a cult. And then underneath all this, there's a code of numbers, each corresponding to a letter, okay? And then underneath that, just seven letters, okay? Numbers. And the code's not exactly, it's not like one corresponding to the other, so I don't understand it right away, but underneath that, it says, figure this out, and like I said, find me. I'm in. I really am very horny, okay? And I've, like, just decided that this is, this is my guy. This is my guy now. We've touched base. I still don't really know what he looks like, but, you know, he's put in the effort. You know, my ex-boyfriend was such a fucking loser. <laughs> this guy is leaving me underneath, next to the toilet. My good, He's really thinking about me, you know? I keep staring at these notes. I keep, like, researching. I keep Googling Gurdjieff, you know? And I'm like, it seems scary, but not dangerous. Maybe not dangerous. I gather all my notes. At this point, there's a healthy pile. I'm like, who do I bring this to for? I can't tell my, my friends. I can't tell my coworkers, certainly. I Google, like, I wonder what I even Googled, what combination of words I could have possibly typed in. Like, uh, how, do you, how to decode cult reference stalker guy? 
with good penmanship. Does this, am I going to die? And, and what I came up with is a crystal shop. And this isn't, this is San Francisco, not Los Angeles. So we're not just casually carrying around crystals in our pockets, ladies and gentlemen. This is like far-fetched for me. So I, I bring it to this crystal shop. A tiny man in gold lame pants, of course, gold lame pants, looks at the notes, studies them, okay, while just wafting incense <laughs> and bobbly, studies the notes, studies, you know, all the evidence. And then after like 30 minutes, okay, of looking at the notes through and through is like, I've concluded that this person is not dangerous, but they are interested in you. I would look into it. Okay, so good. So we have confirmation, so I'm good to go. I spend like all night for several nights trying to decode the numbers, just trying to plug in any, I'm like, you know, like a mad genius in a basement except dumb. Just pacing, like what could this be? Could A is three and then two, oh, and two is Q, here we go. And eventually, I land at a phone number. I notice that it's a phone number because I recognize the 415 area code. And I'm like, it has to be it. This has to be it. This has to be a phone number. I have to call it, and he has to pick up. This just simply has to, oh my, this means the word, I need this. I really need this. <laughs> Could I stress how much I need this? And I just take a chance, and I, and I dial it in in a frenzy, not even thinking about what would happen if someone picks up <laughs> under the end of this phone call. I just dial it in. One ringtone, and then the phone gets picked up, and there's a, it, what took you so long? <laughs> it has been four days since he's left the note, which means he's just been sitting by the phone <laughs> waiting for any ring. He doesn't know my fucking number. It could be like a deck collect. I don't know. He's just, hello? I've been waiting. What took you so Jesus, okay. And I was like, oh my, uh, uh, hello? We've never talked. Just to touch base on where we're at in our relationship is I've just decided that I cosmically want to fuck him, but we've never talked. I don't even really know what he looks like. I know he does have a beard and a beanie, but that's it. And I'm like, oh, hi. And my voice quivers. Of course it quivers. And I say, oh, well, I'm glad I figured it out. And he was like, so am I coming over right now? (laughs) And I was like... Yes. Oh, wait. Um, I, I got to tell you, I, um, I got to be up for this thing tomorrow. It's Christmas. I'm celebrating with my friends. I got to be up pretty early. It was, the next day was Christmas. I'm burying the lead. I, I got to be up for this thing. You, you know, my family, whatever lame thing. <laughs> Just a stupid, dumb thing that I got to do with my family. And he was like, that's okay. I understand. I'll come over to your house and be respectful of your time. And I was like, I'm in. Come on. Come on over. <laughs> Definitely. It takes about a half an hour. I open the door and he, it's the man. And it's the first time that I see his face. And I, it is so striking to me how much older he is than I imagined in my head. In my head, I imagined 30, let's just say late 20s, 30. Um, definitely looked 60. He definitely <laughs> just looked 60 there in my house. A 60 year old, all right? <laughs> like, well, I didn't clean that well, but. He comes over to my house, and I, I, but I'm just so, I think, fascinated with the fact that this person took an interest in me. You know, again, like, I didn't even consider what, I considered just me in this situation, not him, like, at all. He basically comes in, and we sit down, and he just spends a lot of time staring at me. <laughs> and I was like, he's deep. <laughs> he's like, he's like deep. He doesn't have need for words. His backpack's really big. It's like, really, how many things do you carry in a backpack? He has a lot of things in there. 
in a matter of like an hour or so, he tells me kind of his story. I'm just asking a lot of questions. And he is, he is taking his time saying things. He's pausing a lot and staring at me very intensely. And it turns out that he used to be a graphic designer and he was friends with this author that I really actually liked a lot. And then he moved to Japan to study sushi making. And he said, did you know that growing tomatoes is the most punk rock thing you can do? And I was like, oh my God. I, okay, it's okay that he's um, evidently 60 because, oh my, I'm just so wet just listening to him. <laughs> these stories. And then he kind of, um, I, I say I'm getting tired and I, do, I really do have to be up for Christmas. I'm so sorry. He says, I don't feel comfortable sleeping with you erotically because you smell too young. Okay, that is the grossest thing anyone's ever said to anybody. That just to check in, smell too young. Also, would you mind wearing your hair in a braid? That's the way I imagined you. Okay, I'm still really horny. I'm just really one. I'm very lonely mostly. So, I, for some reason, get into bed with him. I put my hair in a braid. Diligently, I was 20. I'm so sorry. Really. And there he grabs my braid. This is so gross. He grabs my braid with his uh, hand. He reveals to me that he's 50. And then he says, in Japan, I had a psychotic breakdown, and now I don't have a home. And every once in a while, I get into just just tense sort of spurts. So I really have to watch myself with you. From this, I gather that he is a little crazy. And I'm like, um, hey, with all due respect, I, I, um, I've enjoyed meeting you a lot. I have to ask you to leave. I'm so sorry. And he, um, while still holding my braid in one hand, says, I don't have anywhere to go. <laughs> and I was like, okay, um, I know, but you have to go. <laughs> I, I can't I can accommodate that. I don't know what to tell you. I'm 20. Did I mention I'm 20? I'm definitely just 20. And then he... Um, he, he sits up sternly, and he says, um, I thought this is what you wanted, but I guess I'll take my leave. He leaves my house. He leaves the cafe. He doesn't come back ever again. Then I receive a 20-page long message on Facebook, of which I will read just the last page. <laughs> this is so funny and sad all at the same time. I love the way things happen. Always perfect. This letter, is it necessary? Mm, no. But I'm going to write it and send it regardless. Am I going to edit myself? No. Why? Because I can. I'm not afraid of feeling vulnerable or rejected or misunderstood or anything. Actually, I have no game or ulterior or anterior motives, which I suppose is the penultimate game and motive. The ultimate being the absolute absence of desire. Actually, this is nonsensical, yet I refuse to delete or edit. <laughs> I fell in a, a strange love with you, and for me, this is a rare thing. I approach this directly. Sans analogous metaphor or borderline obsessive compulsive handcraft. Alas, please do not worry. I will bother you no more. I do plan on moving to a yurt. <laughs> I am, as they say in Flatbush, ghost. I'm sure we've all broken up with someone who it's been a long time coming and we've wanted to move to a different city. Have you ever broken up with someone and wanted to leave society? Just go off grid where there's no electricity or water or communication. I drove a man to a breakdown. That is all to say, though, that 
the whole time the clues pretty much were there in that I don't even know what he looks like. I can't really describe him to you because the whole time I was so focused on like getting something out of this that I literally had no consideration for the other person. Therefore, I think overall, I deserve the whole thing. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. I've been Anna Saragina. I don't feel comfortable sleeping with you because you smell too young. You know, I caught a whiff of her as she walked by. She smells young, you guys. How's everybody doing? Good, good. All right. So I've seen a lot of dead bodies. Not something you generally lead with when you meet somebody, but it is a fact. It's a a true, true thing. I have seen a lot of dead bodies. The first one was in 1989. I was 14 years old, uh, living in Hartford, Connecticut, my hometown. And um, I was living on Woodside Circle, which is a nice little half street, quiet, nice people, nice houses, not so nice kids. I babysat most of them, so they were annoying as hell, I can tell you that much. I was obsessed with my neighbor, Julie Nerman, who was an older lady whose husband was a rich doctor and she was left at home to her own devices. She was a photographer, but pretty much a stay-at-home mom. But her kids were off in college, so she was lonely, I was lonely. I wanted to learn photography. So I hung out at her house a lot, and she'd make me strawberry rhubarb pie, and we'd take pictures, and it was really cool. And then one summer, we're standing in the house, and we hear a knock at the door. We had these huge Labrador retriever puppies, and they just came like barreling down through the hallway and pounced on the door. And she told me to pull them back, so I pulled them back, and we opened the door, and there are two very solemn-faced police officers standing at the door. And they go, you know, excuse me, ma'am, can we speak with you? And she gives me a look like I should probably step away, and so I do. So I take the dogs to the backyard, and I knew something was wrong, right? So from outside, I walked down through her yard a little bit, and I could see just like diagonally across the street, our quiet street was covered with cop cars and ambulances and newspaper reporters. So something horrible had happened. I came back inside and she looked at me and she was just ashen, you know, it was like nothing. And she said, Mr. Cotter killed his entire family and then himself. And I just stood there. I had no idea how to process that at that age. And then I walked outside and she was like, you should probably go home. But I didn't go home. I walked outside and I walked down the street and I stood across from the house And it sort of hit me before I knew what it was, but it was the smell of dead bodies just wafting out of the house. And I stood there and I stared and I waited. And then I started to count John Jr., Anne, Julia, and Mr. Cotter. 
They came out in maroon body bags. And then finally, there's huge two standard size poodles. And the dogs had been living in the house for two weeks with the dead bodies. And they were covered in blood. It was just a mess. And I didn't know Mr. Cotter well. You know, he, he drove down our street past the curve of my house in his late model green Range Rover with dead deer on the roof every Saturday. He was a hunter. And I stood there and I nervously like ran my necklace around my chin. Long enough for a photographer from the Hartford Current to snap a photo which made the cover of the paper the next day. And they would say that he was suffering from depression and had failed businesses and that his family had tried to hide from him, that they found his daughter behind a couch and his son in a closet. It was the worst thing that ever happened to me at 14. I started thinking, wow, what is the freedom in death? Because I was in the closet then. I hadn't come out. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. But I was scared. I was terrified. Was there freedom in death? So I was living in Washington, D.C., going to Howard University, uh, living on North Capitol and T Street with a beautiful view of the Capitol building, surrounded by crackheads. I had lied to my mother and told her that I was staying in D.C. that summer for an internship. But really what I was doing was driving around with my old neighbor in his pickup truck and digging through trash and then finding things and selling them at the farmer's market. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I still don't know why. But it was hot. D.C. in the summer, it's like incredibly hot and humid, and around five o'clock it's like thunders, and it rains, and you feel like you're in like the trenches of the swamp. And that summer it was happening, and the violence picked up in my neighborhood. And one afternoon I came home, and my entire driveway was wrapped in police tape. And I lived with my brothers at the time, they lived in the basement apartment, and I was just like freaked out, like something had happened to them. But what had happened was there was a kid, a teenager, that would run through the alleyway. He'd gotten jumped, and he ran past my car, and the other kids, they just shot him in the back. And he died right there by my car. So I come home to police tape in a blood-splattered car. I did the only thing I could at 19. I went upstairs and I rolled a joint. <laughs> and this shit was getting ridiculous. A few weeks later, I was sitting in my room at around 10 o'clock at night listening to Ani DeFranco, like a good lesbian. Um, and I hear gunshots. And I drop to the floor. And I stand up and I peer out the window and I look. And I see this young woman just lying like 10 feet from my stoop in the middle of the street. It was like she had been killed by a ghost because there was no one on the street. It was just silence. And so I decided I'm gonna go outside because I just don't believe that this is real. I mean, it doesn't look real. It was like my street had turned into a movie set. And so I go out and I stand and I look and I see her face down, bullet hole in the back of her head and the blood is just flowing. It's like a river and the streets were silent. And quietly the neighbors came out and people started talking, people started crying. 
And what had happened was that she was the sister of the boy that shot the kid that they were trying to rob. So revenge was swift and immediate in the hood. I moved out. It was too much. Too much to bear, too real. There was no way to process it. I started thinking of things like timing and coincidence. I could have been coming home. I could have been riding my bike. I could have been coming back from the bodega. I could have been there. I could have been dead just like her. I was working as a director of preservation at the Weeksville Heritage Center, which is an African-American historic site. We were across from the Kingsborough Houses, which is a huge, huge uh, project. You know, I had a good relationship with the neighbors. I was there every morning to open the site. And then one morning I come up and I see that there's a red cutlass just parked in the driveway blocking the entrance as usual. It wasn't really odd, you know, but what was odd was that the windows were down and there was an old man butt naked in the back seat of the car. So I go and I knock on the window, you know, and I'm like, hello, sir, 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 and nothing. So I think, all right, well, he's sleeping it off. I'm just going to let him be, you know. We have kids coming. We have a tour happening. i got to get this site ready. So I go in. Around 11 o'clock, I come back out. I try again. Dawn's on me. He's dead. It was hot. And I imagine that in his little tiny, shitty apartment across the street, he just, it's just been too much. Didn't have an air conditioner. He's like, I'm going to sleep in my car. So I go back in, I call the cops. Now the cops are, 77th Precinct is a block away from the museum. So we've got a dead body, guys. Can somebody come? Yeah, 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 they say. Okay, all right. We've got school kids coming. <laughs> nothing. An hour later, nothing. An hour later, nothing. An hour later, by 4 o'clock that afternoon, they come, moseying in. What happened, I asked them. Oh, we had a shift change. Really? They take out this long taser. I'm like, he's dead. He's been here all day, he's dead. Well, we just need to check. Okay, all right. So they stick the taser in and they like tase him in the side. Obviously nothing. They look at each other. Oh, he's dead. Like, no shit, you assholes. <laughs> and they come, the coroner comes and they take him away. And the neighbors start coming over. They ask me, what happened, what happened? And I tell them, you know, Charlie died in his car. Because he was a good guy, you know, he's one of the good guys. He would come, he'd help me pick up trash, we'd chat a little bit about the museum. It was fine. But what a horrible way to go. 2015, all I see is death these days. All I see is bodies these days. Black people, we are under siege in this country. And I want to stop seeing death. I want to stop mourning. I want to stop crying. And I beg you all to help make a difference. Because black lives do matter. All the things we've been told, all the things that we see, they tell us that we don't, but we do. And I just want to stop seeing death. Thank you.
Yesterday I got lost in the circus Feeling like such a mess And now I'm down, I'm just hanging on This is Risk. This is Amos Lee behind me now, and we just heard from the wonderful Robin Cloud. Look her up at robincloudcomedy.com. She does so many wonderful things. She's the host of BK Live in Brooklyn, and she tours the country with her talk, Accept Yourself Before You Wreck Yourself, inspiring audiences to transform their fears into acts of courage. I want to talk for a moment about Blue Apron. Did you know that for less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron will deliver to you seasonal recipes with the highest quality ingredients and pre-portioned amounts to help you make, right there at home, delicious home-cooked meals. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make great meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, ranchers, whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron brings you the very best. I never considered myself much of a cooking kind of guy, but I have actually had fun making remarkable meals following their instructions. I've always said that one of the reasons I don't cook is you have to go to the grocery store and get just enough of this and just enough of that and just enough of the other. Here, it all comes right to your door. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash risk. That's blueapron.com slash risk. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes to create your own incredible home-cooked meals. That's blueapron.com slash risk. Blue Apron is a better way to cook. Also, credit scores. These two words are key to your financial reputation, and you may not even realize how important they are. Your credit score may impact important things in your life from your car, your student loans, your mortgage, your interest payments. Maybe you don't know what yours is, but it's okay. Credit Karma is here to help. Credit Karma gives you completely free credit reports and scores, no hidden costs, no obligations. They provide free credit monitoring so you can stay on top of your accounts and get alerts right on your phone. In fact, over 50 million members have signed up for Credit Karma. And here again, I can vouch like this is the kind of thing that scares me normally. 
But Credit Karma is so easy to use, so helpful. Get your free credit report and scores now by visiting creditkarma.com slash value. That's creditkarma.com slash value. You never need to enter a credit card number. It really is free. So go to creditkarma.com slash value today. Our final story on today's episode comes from one of our favorites. He is the author of the absolutely fantastic memoir, Bad Kid. If you haven't gotten it yet, go to Amazon right now and get Bad Kid by David Crabb. It's hilarious and poignant and just one of a kind. David teaches for our school, The Story Studio. He's now based in Los Angeles, and you can find him at davidcrab.net. Here he is now with a story we call, Can I Pick This Up? Hi, how are you doing? Uh, does anyone here remember Electro Clash? Wow, okay. Uh, so Electro Clash was going to be the next big thing in music in like 2002 in Brooklyn. Uh, all the hipsters love it. I was a me- founding member of the second wave of hipsters in Williamsburg. Everyone stop. Um, and, and I love this kind of music. This music has a lot of mood and not a lot of content. Uh, there's a lot of drum machines and a lot of swaths of keyboards. There's not a lot of vocals. I would go in Williamsburg to my favorite club. It was called Club Lux with two and I would go there uh, and I would dance to Electro Clash bands. Now, calling them bands is a stretch. Uh, generally, it was a couple. It was oftentimes um, a boy in a vest with Robert Smith hair, sort of barely pressing a drum machine. And then next to him was like uh, a girl with like long dreads uh, with an electric guitar and in a British accent, she would just say really profound things like, Daddy's credit card <laughs> going out tonight. Um, Now, if band was a stretch for them, dance was a stretch for what we did. Um, Until everyone's drugs hit around midnight, it was more of just sort of like an apathetic swaying. You know, like everyone's pants were too tight to feel anything in Williamsburg in 2002. So we would just kind of sway. And now, if you saw me at this time in my life, I had a very specific ensemble, a uniform that I took a lot of pride in. Um, You would see my jeans first. Uh, They were distressed beyond recognition. It was like I'd been caught in a storm of moths. Uh, I had... uh, so many holes in my jeans that my pockets hung outside of the denim. Like, you could look at my, like, weathered fabric of my pockets and be like, that boy has two keys, a thing of chapstick, and 27 cents. Like, they were just so distressed. Um, and then I was wearing a white Hanes t-shirt. I would buy the three-pack, and then I would go home, and I'd get real crafty with them. Uh, I would take a Sharpie, and I would draw, like, razor blades and dead leaves. And then, I would, and then I would cut them up and then put them back together with, like, safety pins and duct tape. And then to top it all off, right beneath um, my perfectly messed faux hawk, I wore a necklace that was a ceiling fan chain with a padlock on it. You're welcome. Um, 
this was my look, and I thought it was very hip. I thought it was very cool, and I would go there, and I would sway, and I would like a lot of people didn't dance. I took to leaning against things and looking angry. That was like my my thing um, that me and a lot of other people did there. Uh, and I would do that. I would do that for a while, and then eventually, like I would talk to uh, some boy, like some cute guy would come up with tattoos and dirty fingernails. Not at all like the sort of bright theater musical boy that I thought I would grow up to, you know, date when I was in Texas and as a little boy. And he would come up, and every time the same thing would happen, we would start talking, and I would be like vibing, and I would start to get a little bit nervous. And then I would go and get a drink, and then another drink, and a little more liquid courage. And now I'd be really talking at this point to this guy. And then eventually, at one, at some point, I would be like, I have to go to the bathroom. And then I would run, around, I would go around the corner, and then I would run from the bar like intimacy. I would run home, absolutely, just, just, just terrified. I, I would buy a pint of Ben and Jerry's. I would put my headphones in. There's a club. If you'd like to go, you could find someone that really, really loves you. <laughs> I was terrified of intimacy. I was all talk and absolutely no walk. Um, my whole four years of undergrad and college, it was nary a lay in sight. Uh, grad school, I moved to Michigan in the woods with a bunch of artists where I like made pieces where I like made masks of my own face and then photographed people in the woods. Like, I, yeah. Um, I... And, and during that two years, like, I really found my passion for art, but I got no closer to understanding who I was sexually. So when I moved to Williamsburg, it was kind of like 16-year-old me's dreams coming true, but I was just terrified. And I would run home with my pint of ice cream, and I would turn on my desktop computer to hang out with my real boyfriend, internet porn! Um... <laughs> If any of you had had, uh, had a relationship with porn before, porn is so great. Um, <laughs> porn is always there for you. Uh, he always, it's like he knows what you want at any given moment. Like he's always dressed or undressed in just the way you want. Um, and he'll, he'll stay this as long as it takes, as short or as long, no complaints. He actually needs nothing from you at all. And I had had a very successful relationship uh, with porn for years, uh, and I would sit there with my Ben and Jerry's, uh, pleasuring myself, and it was like a scene that was so sad, John Cameron Mitchell cut it from short bus. Do you know what I mean? It was just, just sad. Like, just, ugh, like, no. Now, I was getting by doing this, and you know, my roommates, I lived with three people at the time. Uh, I lived with, I was the gay guy, there was a straight guy, a gay girl, and a straight girl, and we were so proud of ourselves. We were like, we've covered every corner of the gender sexual compass. Mind you, we were all as white as driven snow. Like, <laughs> so much for diversity. But we were very proud of ourselves, we were very cool. And they would ask me about it, and I'd be like, well, I went to his place last night, ha <laughs> ha And they were just like, okay. Uh, one night, I'm at Club Lux, and I'm standing there, and um, this boy comes up and he starts talking to me. Uh, he's basically a skinhead, he's got Doc Martens rolled up jeans basically everything that I want like he looks like a boy to at a Joy Division concert in like 1981 and I'm like yes and we're talking and we're hanging out and I'm like liquid courage liquid courage liquid courage and I'm finally like I have to go to the bathroom and I go into the bathroom and I use it and then when I go to leave he's standing there he's like what what, what are you doing and I'm like I'm, I'm really I'm really tired and I, and I have to go home and he's like oh well I live where you live so so I'm gonna come with you and I was like okay <laughs> So we call like a, like a livery cab, like a town car, and we're in the car, and we're driving home, and in just a few minutes, we are basically sucking the life force from each other's faces. Uh, we have an Indian cab driver who's so sweet, and I can see his eyes like looking at us, and he's playing like a lovely sort of like, like and for all I know, it's like devotional music, and like we're two homos, like, ah. 
I feel so bad, right? And I remember that it was so hot and heavy that the windows were fogged up. And I remember this because I was actively looking whenever we stopped at a place to just jump from the car. Like, no! Like, screaming, running. Intimacy! We finally are at a stoplight, and I stop, and I'm like, I- I'm sorry, I-, I can't do this. And he's like, what? And I'm about to speak when, the first thing I remember is the sound of it. It's like, it was like a thousand pounds of metal, like, falling off a cliff. It was just this horrible crunching. And as I'm looking into this guy's eyes, his face sort of drifts with mine. Our heads bash into the partition um, behind the driver of the car, and I just hear alarms. I just hear alarms and glass and we sort of sit up, and we look at each other, and we look behind us, and there are these two Polish guys in a sports car, and they rear-ended the car. And the cab driver says, are you okay? And we're like, yes. And then he runs out, and they're screaming and fighting, and my heart is beating a million miles an hour. I feel suddenly sober, and I look, and I'm like holding this guy's hand. And he goes to say something, and I just say, come home with me. <laughs> and he's like, okay, where do you live? And I look out the window, which is no longer fogged up, and we're literally at my apartment. I'm like, here, I've been re... <laughs> And I'm not going to let the symbolism of being rear-ended in front of my house pass me by uh, this time. This is a gift. This is a gift. It's kismet. So, we, we get out of the car, and we, we run upstairs, and we go, and I'm like, I'm very, very quiet. I have roommates. And we walk inside the apartment, and we're just like, if you've ever been in a, an accident like that, the adrenaline is pumping. It's like we haven't drunk at all. So he goes, I'm like, there's my room. Just go in there and shut the door. And I go in the kitchen, and I get us two whiskeys. And when I open the door in my bedroom, the guy is on my bed and he's slung back and his legs are spread open and he has this electric bass I have and it's between his legs and he's just kind of like plucking it and I am like Chub City. Like this is like the hottest thing I've ever seen in my life and I'm like, hi! And, and he's like, come lay down. And I'm like, okay. So I creep over to the bed and I lay next to him and we start making out and it's really hot and I'm nervous but I'm excited when all of a sudden I realize that he just sort of pushes my base over the side of the bed and it smashes on the hardwood floor like really loud and I think it's okay but it it just it's like the first little red flag that there's like something up that's not right mind you I have only ever used the base two times to play love me do while I was a counselor at a summer camp uh I I mainly keep it because it looks really good in that corner um but it but it but it makes me upset and angry somehow but I try to contain it because I'm making out with a guy and he's really hot we're making out very hard and then he gets a little rough he's like holding my wrist down and I'm telling myself like we're, this is just we're just having like a passionate experience and we can do role playing and I can do this I'm a grown man and then I look over his shoulder and I realize that the door to my bedroom is open to the hallway where the bathroom is where all of my roommates should they get up they will have to like pass through and I go to get up when he grabs my wrist and he slams me down on the bed now I grew up in the 80s watching all of those like your kids are going to get kidnapped and if you're a woman you're going to get raped and cut up by the river like all of those like talk shows you know what I mean like the, like all of those like Donahue and I remember on like watching Oprah Winfrey she would always have the women that talk about don't go to the second location like that was the big thing and, and she would have these women on the show that would come on and be like I knew I was walking alone at 1am and the man in the thick glasses with the van in the fog was scary but he needed help moving a couch like I... You know, 
and in, and in that moment, I got that because I was just thinking it would be such bad roommate performance of me if any of them should have to witness me being raped. Like, because that is actually what I thought. That is rude of me. It was almost like there was no self-preservation because I was so surprised that I thought I might about, I might maybe being being raped. Like, it was just so confusing to me. And I went to get up again, and then he slammed me down really hard, and something snapped, and I kneed him in the groin really hard, and I said, get the fuck off me! And it was like watching a light switch go on. It was like suddenly we were sober all over again. And he sat up and he's like, I'm so sorry. I- I'm so sorry. And he started like getting all his stuff together and his jacket. And we were like making small talk. And at one point I was like, we should hang out sometime. And he was like, yeah, we should. We should get together. But we shook hands. It was so weird. And then he left. And I felt this wave of relief that he was gone. And then the next thing I felt was so disappointed because I was alone in my house again at 4 o'clock in the morning, fucked up. I went to the freezer, I got the Ben and Jerry's, I powered up the desktop, and I turned on my internet boyfriend. And I was very drunk at this point, and it was really starting to hit me, and I was like, I need to find a very specific, I, need, I knew who I wanted my boyfriend porn to be at that moment, and it took a little bit, I had to go down the wormhole a little bit, but I found him. Uh, and I found this porn, and there was a lot of the rhetorical, you know, like the rhetorical questions in porn, they're always like, yeah, you like that, but in real life, when someone does it, you want to be like, stop asking me questions and do it, it obviously feels good, yes, I like it, like that. <laughs> So I put on my headphones and I'm like watching the porn. I'm drunk and I'm turning up the porn. I can't hear the porn. I'm like, I turn up the porn a little bit more. I can't hear the porn. I'm turning up a little more. And then finally I hear David. 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 David! And I look behind me. My roommate is in my room, kind of shielding her eyes, but also like covering herself in her nightshirt. And she's like, turn that shit off! And I'm like fumbling for the speaker. And I realize I'm so drunk, I didn't plug the headphones in. I, I was wearing earmuffs, just turning up. Yeah, you like that bitch? I'm your bitch! Yeah, you like it, you little fucking cunt? Oh, daddy! It's blaring. And I'm like fumbling for the controls. And she's like, turn it off! Turn it off! And I'm like, I'm trying! I'm trying! Mind you, just like hiding like a semi from her at the same time like in the desk chair she storms out of the room slams the door and I turn off the porn and I open my bedroom door and I look in the hallway and every single one of my roommates lights are on light under all of their doors as blaring through the house was you like that bitch boy yes daddy do it to me all night over the next few months I decided I need to be a little bit more careful about my home masturbation situation um And over the next few months, a few different things happened. Uh, I lost a job. I found a job. I lost a job. I had a few horrible drunken dates. Uh, They were kind of relationships, but not really. I got really sick. I had to stay in the hospital after I lost 25 pounds, and I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and had all these bills. And basically, life did that thing that I hope can happen to all of us if we try to withdraw or not be with people or isolate, where it kind of like shook me like Cher and Moonstruck. It was like, snap the fuck out of it. Like, that's what life (laughs) did to me, you know? And it made me angry at first, and then it made me sad, and then it just made me like a little softer. And I think because of that, I was open about a year after this happened to uh, meeting this guy at a bar, and we just started a conversation. And he's amazing, and I've been with him for a little over 12 years now. And, um, and, uh, he, and uh, he's really great. He brings me ice cream. Uh, sometimes I don't even ask for it. It just arrives. Um, <laughs> When he hears music he likes, he doesn't sway. He dances, like stupid dances, like you want him at your wedding reception, like that kind of dancer. 
Um, he treats me well, and he calls me out on my shit. Uh, if I try to withdraw or become isolated, he can see it happening, and he stops it. Um, there's a lot of memories I have of him over the years, uh, reasons that I love him, but one of my favorites is one of the first times he came over to my apartment. Uh, he saw my electric bass in the corner, and he walked towards it, and he went to pick it up, and I remember watching him, his hand hover over it, and then he stopped. And in this way that like made me really aroused, but also gave me like a total cute attack, he just said, um, can I pick this up? And I looked at him and I said, yes. Yes, you can. Thanks. is all for this week's episode folks this is i'm from barcelona behind me now i'm gonna read off the places where risk is appearing live next we are at the bell house in brooklyn on july 27th on july 30th we're at the bootleg theater in los angeles on august 5th we are in toronto come on out toronto August 5th in Toronto, and then August 6th in Montreal. Now, we are still taking pitches for the Montreal show. So, folks, if you live in Montreal, pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. Be sure and point out you are from Montreal. The theme that night is myths, so those stories can be about beliefs, delusions, lies, hero stories, all that sort of thing. So pitch us, Montreal. Now, this one's a way off, but on November 12th, we're in Baltimore, Maryland. We've got a bunch of to-be-announced, to-be-determined shows between now and then, but we can confirm that we will be in Baltimore on the 12th of November. The theme that night is Wounded. So Baltimore people, pitch us your wounded stories at risk-show.com slash submissions. Stay in touch with us at Risk on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. Check out the stuff we have for sale in our shop at risk-show.com. Don't forget we teach storytelling at thestorystudio.org. All sorts of one-on-one, over Skype, corporate workshops for entire staffs of companies, all at thestorystudio.org. And if you'd like to help us out, you can always help support us at the Support Us page at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Don't give up on your dreams, boy. Don't give up on your dreams, now, boy.
Don't give up on your dreams, boy Don't give up on your dreams now, buddy Don't give up on your dreams, boy